Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The question around renewables has always been what to do when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. One answer is to move electricity around. That, though, will require brand new international networks of impressively big cables. And there was a time that Canada's version of American football drew the same kinds of crowds and talent that America's did. Not anymore. And efforts to revive and broaden its appeal haven't worked either. We ask whether the sport can survive. But first... America's Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, spoke in Kiev yesterday alongside his Ukrainian counterpart, Andriy Tehran. Let's be clear that Russia started this war and Russia is the obstacle to a peaceful resolution. And they can start by respecting uh, Ukrainian sovereignty and its territorial integrity. America has been a staunch ally of Ukraine, in particular since Russia annexed the southern peninsula of Crimea in 2014 and backed forces in the east that have been fighting on and off ever since. And in the meantime, we will continue to do everything that we can to support Ukraine's efforts to develop the capabilities to defend itself and protect its, uh, its sovereign territory. Things got particularly edgy in April, when Russia sent more than 100,000 troops to the Ukrainian border. But such calculated displays of military power aren't the only thing worrying Ukrainians. Another one, a big one, is natural gas. A new pipeline between Russia and Germany called Nord Stream 2 is a few regulatory tick boxes away from starting up, leaving behind pipelines that many Ukrainians would call lifelines. Right now, a high proportion of the gas that Russia sells to Europe flows through a pipeline that goes across Ukraine. Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor. If Russia were to stop using that pipeline, not only would Ukraine be deprived of all the transit fees for moving the gas across its territory, but also the eastern part of the country would find it really hard to get gas to heat their homes. And it's pretty cold in Ukraine in the winter. And you travelled recently to some villages in that eastern region. What's the mood like there? Well, people are still very scared of Russia. You remember, Russia has annexed one big chunk of Ukrainian territory, Crimea, and it's backed ethnic Russian separatists in another big area, the Donbass, which is very close to where I was. A lot of people have very fresh memories of the fighting, and masses of ceasefire violations take place all the time. So villagers are still very often sleeping in their basements for fear of bombardment. And yet, for years now, life has gone on in these communities that you visited. How are people there finding a way through it? 
The conflict has bred resourcefulness and resilience. We talked to one mayor, Sergei Shapkin, just a little small village, who described how he'd managed to keep his village safe during the height of the fighting. His village was of no strategic importance, but it had shops, and he knew there were separatists on one side and the Ukrainian army on the other side. And he knew that if they came into the village, they'd meet and they'd start shooting, and lots of old people and children would get killed. So he went out and he chatted to the uh, both sides, and he said to the pro-Russians, he said, look, I know you need to come in and buy food and cigarettes. Can you please just do that? in the morning. And then he said to the Ukrainian army guys, can you please just come in to buy your food and cigarettes in the afternoon? And that way, they didn't meet each other, they didn't shoot, and everyone in the village survived. So why is it then that Russia and Vladimir Putin have it in for Ukraine so badly? Vladimir Putin argues that Ukraine's not really a country, that it and Russia are the same country, and so they should be under the same government. He probably can't make that happen in its entirety, but he's very keen, if he can't have that, to make sure that Ukraine fails, because what he doesn't want is an example of a thriving democracy on his doorstep that would set an example to Russians. And so how does this gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2, fit into his agenda then? What Nord Stream 2 would do, if it's allowed, and they seem to be pretty close to that, is it would allow him to ship gas to his European customers, who are his main customers, completely bypassing Ukraine. That would mean that the Ukrainian pipeline would no longer be something that Russia needs as an economic lifeline, and he would be at liberty to turn it off and on as he pleases to threaten Ukraine. And he tried that before in 2009. He turned the pipeline off briefly, and it caused total panic in Ukraine. He couldn't sustain that because he needed the money from shipping gas to Europe. Nord Stream 2 would mean that he doesn't have to worry about shipping gas through Ukraine at all. And with that threat, then, is there any way someone could step in and and stop that happening? The European Union has specifically said that it will guarantee Ukraine's energy security. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, reiterated that promise last week. The Commission, together with Ukrainian experts, is exploring right now different scenarios to secure sufficient supply for Ukraine. But Putin is trying to divide the Europeans by offering individual countries, such as Hungary, a discount on gas if they agree to take it through a a different route. The Biden administration has promised to stick up for Ukraine. Russia must not be allowed to use energy as a weapon to coerce or threaten its neighbors. But just this year, they waived the sanctions that could have prevented Nord Stream 2 from being completed. So Ukraine faces the threat of energy supplies being cut off alongside the ever-present threat of, of more attacks, more violence breaking out. How able is Ukraine to defend itself militarily? So Ukraine can't stand up to the Russian army, which is much bigger. And you know, Putin massed more than 100,000 troops on their border earlier this year in March and April, which was terrifying for them. At the same time, though, An extraordinary amount of power in Ukraine is wielded by oligarchs, sort of very rich tycoons with fingers in many pies. During the first part of the war with Russia, some of them played a pivotal role, for example, in the city of Mariupol, an important port on the Sea of Azov. The Ukrainian army, who were ill-trained conscripts, were about to run away, but a local oligarch, Ihor Kolomoisky, raised a militia and armed it and paid for it, and those guys occupied the streets and persuaded the Ukrainian army to stay. And so the Russians were not able to overrun the city. 
And what about the Ukrainian government? What, what's its position on the influence of, of those oligarchs in this conflict? The current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was elected on a platform of cutting them down to size. He's about to sign an anti-oligarch law that will name as an oligarch anyone who is very rich, bankrolls a political party and owns media assets. That would make it much harder for them to operate and to raise capital. The problem is, it looks like he wants to use this as a way of either taking over the television stations owned by oligarchs or obliging them to support him. What anti-corruption NGOs would like to see instead uh, is a prosecutor with teeth to go after serious corruption and that is independent of the presidency and also independent enforcement of antitrust law. And that's something that's sorely lacking and which the current president does not seem to be making very much effort to put in place. But where does that crackdown on oligarchs leave the people of eastern Ukraine on matters of security and, and energy security? In the end, the thing that makes Ukraine hardest to govern is also the thing that makes it hardest for the outside world to help. And that's the widespread system of corruption, which does involve some of the oligarchs, but also many more people besides. The IMF uh, and other possible donors are reluctant to throw money into a country when that country has failed to recover, for example, you know, billions of dollars that have gone missing from banks that have gone bust or from corrupt contracts which have been done with the government. As long as the Ukrainian government hasn't dealt properly with corruption, it's in a much less strong position to persuade its partners in Europe to do what it wants on Nord Stream 2. Robert, thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you, Jason. Managing the supply and demand of electricity has traditionally been about watching the clock, providing enough of it when people need it, and dialing it back when they don't. But these days, there's a different way of thinking about it. Managing electricity not across time, but across space. The way electricity is generated is changing, and that means you need new wiring. Stanley Pignol is our European business and finance correspondent. As renewables become ever more important, a lot of stuff needs to happen behind the scenes to make sure the lights stay on, even when the wind doesn't blow. You say a lot of stuff needs to happen. I mean, how to start? So fundamentally, with renewables, there's a new challenge, which is how do you match supply and demand in a much more complex way? So before, if you think about it, in, in the fossil fuels era, you had fluctuating demand, but you can meet that demand by turning on a gas plant or a coal plant just when you needed it. With renewable energy, not only do you not really no demand, but even supply is hard to gauge because solar power is intermittent and, of course, wind power is intermittent as well. Now, the ideal would be to have huge batteries. So you generate a lot of wind energy or solar energy, you store that in batteries, and you shift it from the time that is generated to the time that you need it. But that's actually really complicated, and it's not really viable right now. 
So the second best thing you can do is to shift electricity across space from the places that have it now to the places that need it. And that's where cabling comes in. And so what's an example of, of where that would work, where that would be most useful? So take Scandinavia, for example, Denmark and Norway. Denmark has installed a huge amount of wind turbines. Actually, it has enough wind turbines that when the wind blows, no other source of electricity power is required. But obviously the wind doesn't blow every day. So it needs a plan B. And what it might do is have lots of coal or gas-powered stations that it would just use on quiet days. A much more elegant solution is a cable to Norway, uh, which is not so far away, and it has ample hydroelectric potential. So when the wind blows, both places, Denmark and Norway, use Danish wind power, so they keep Norwegian water in reservoirs. And on calm days, when Danish wind isn't blowing, you drain the Norwegian lakes a little bit faster, you generate more hydroelectric uh, electricity, uh, and you send some of that to Denmark. The key thing there is that obviously you need some kind of link between uh, Denmark and Norway, and the more countries are connected in that way, uh, the more you can do that kind of thing. But what do those connections look like? I, I shouldn't be imagining just a, a big, long extension cord, should I? Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that, Jason, as you can imagine. These are big cables. I mean, we're talking about high-voltage cables. They can be anything from 20 to 50 centimeters in diameter, so they weigh 150 kilograms per meter. They're very hard to handle. And to lay them in the sea, you need specialist ships. And I got to visit one called the Nexans Aurora, which is run by a French cabling company, uh, Nexans. It's, it's just uh, launching now. And actually, it's, it's about to lay its first cable uh, in the Mediterranean uh, to link the island of Crete to the Greek mainland. Okay, tell me about this boat. Yeah, so the purpose of this boat is to lay a giant cable. So actually, what you have is a giant spool of cable, which is uh, about 30 meters across, which is roughly the the, the size, uh, the, the width of the ship, um, and can weigh up to 10,000 tons. So you're talking about the weight of the Eiffel Tower, um, and then everything else is built around that. And as the boat goes forward, it unspools that cable from the rear, not terribly quickly. It can do about 10 or 12 kilometers a day. And if it's needed, it can dig a trench up to a kilometer below the water, the idea being that obviously you don't want these vital pieces of infrastructure to get caught up either by an anchor or by a fishing net. I mean, this sounds like a pretty expensive business laying down cables of that size and weight. It is. I mean, as a rule of thumb, for every gigawatt of electricity, for example, in a an offshore wind farm, which obviously needs to be connected to the land as well, you're talking about 250 million euros of cabling and uh, installation. So a lot of investments required. And on top of that, a lot of the connections on land that we depend on now are antiquated as well and need to be replaced. But you see what the potential gains are, right? Uh, earlier this year in February, you might remember there was a big power crisis in Texas, and that caused in part by, by poor interconnection uh, between power grids. That's helped unlock stimulus in the US. In Europe, the EU is extremely keen to develop a single market in electricity. And the idea is, you know, the more you can interconnect between countries, the more electricity becomes a commodity like oil, and that helps push down the cost over time. And even potentially more importantly in the EU, it helps you build more renewables and rely more on renewables, and that's going to help Europe meet its very ambitious decarbonization targets. 
So you say the first of these is being laid uh, in the Mediterranean now. I mean, how soon until these these grand networks are, are all operational? So there's already a significant amount of interconnection going on. The Norway to Denmark example I gave, you know, happened decades ago. But more and more of these links are now becoming viable in part because of these new giant cable laying ships like the Nexans Aurora. So now we're seeing there's a Norway to Britain link, which started operating this month. Uh, we're now looking at links between Greece and Israel, for example, or Israel and France. And then there are potentially some much longer, more ambitious and, and somewhat more speculative cables being planned, for example, linking Australia, Indonesia and Singapore. So that's over 4000 kilometers or even Morocco and Britain. So, again, the idea there being that you could have fairly reliable Moroccan solar energy and wind energy come into the UK where obviously the weather is somewhat different. So finally, you're starting to see a lot more public money and private money chasing this opportunity. Stanley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For an in-depth discussion on how the grand renewable energy transition can be financed, listen to the latest episode of our new climate show, To a Lesser Degree. Find it wherever vast undersea networks of podcasts are distributed. In 1991, the biggest star in American college football was Rocket Ismail. Rocket to the It was anybody's guess just how much he'd get paid to go professional with the National Football League. The question is, what would it take to lure the man who could go number one in next month's NFL draft? But just a day before the draft, Mr. Ismael signed a deal for $26 million not to play in the NFL at all. The highest paid player in the history of the sport would instead join the Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League. This multi-million dollar man has only been practicing Canadian football for a month, yet he's receiving more attention than any other player in the entire game, including the NFL. Canada's always been more of a hockey country, but its version of football has a proud history. Back in the 1990s, the CFL competed for top talent. Since then, though, the fans have become far fewer, and a storied Canadian sport is wasting away. The CFL is back this year after the entire 2020 season was cancelled. But even before the pandemic, fan bases for the Canadian football teams were shrinking really dramatically. Peg Fong writes about Canada for The Economist and is based in Vancouver. For example, the BC Lions, a team based in Vancouver, drew an average of 18,000 fans to its games in 2019. Fifteen years ago, they routinely had twice as many in the stadium. Before we get into the decline in, in fans here, what's the difference between Canadian and American football? Well, it's essentially the same game as the American game, but with a few tweaks to the rules. The field is 110 yards long, not 100 yards, and teams are of 12, not 11. And teams have three downs or three chances to advance down the field before they have to turn the ball over to their opponent. In the NFL, it's four downs. So lovers of Canadian football will tell you that all of this makes it a much better game to watch for spectators than the NFL version. There's more throwing the ball downfield and less inching ahead a few yards at a time. So given that it's an allegedly more exciting game, why isn't it as popular as it once was? 
The sport has failed to attract younger fans as well as non-white demographics, but that drop in popularity is not for lack of effort by the league's promoters. In the 1990s, marketers tried to attract American football fans with the slogan, our balls are bigger. The footballs themselves used to be slightly larger than American ones. The CFL is back and more radical than ever. The action never stops. It's hard-hitting, high-scoring football. More recently, they built ad campaigns around particular players, hoping to make CFL stars. The Canadian Football League. You need to see these guys play. That's been a tough sell. It used to be that the CFL could compete with the NFL in attracting talent, but not anymore. Salaries in the NFL are now over 30 times higher than in Canada. So is there a way forward here, or is this the beginning of the end for the CFL? Well, hopefully not for the CFL, but, you know, the league is looking outside of Canada for fans. In 2019, before the pandemic shut things down, it recruited players from Europe and Mexico, hoping to attract viewers from their home countries. And it has also signed television broadcast deals in the U.S. and in Mexico to simulcast Canadian games. Owners are also aware of the need to bring in younger, more diverse fans. The league needs to if Canadian football wants to survive. Otherwise, this sport might live and die with its older, loyal local fan bases. Peg, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.